Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, please give us ears to hear, eyes to uh, see what you're trying to say to us this morning. Please work in our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to be open to being challenged and encouraged by your word as we continue to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus famously says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, This verse, I think, summarizes the Bible's teaching that there's only one way to God. There's only one way to God, and that way is through believing in Jesus. A couple years ago, uh, before COVID, I was visiting uh, the PA hospital, and I bumped into a chaplain there, and we began talking. Uh, He was quoting scripture and hymns, so I assumed he was a Christian. But then he says this to me before we parted ways. He said, you know, I'm just here to make people feel good. There's many ways to heaven, and I'm just helping them on their way. There's many ways to heaven, and I'm just helping them on their way. At that moment when I heard this, I did a double take. I was stunned. I was caught off guard. I don't even remember what happened next. And these days, I look back at that conversation as a reminder that while the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the only way to God, it's a truth that actually can't be assumed, even inside the church. Well, as we begin our short series, we're going to be looking at our five uh, church values Uh, The first value is gospel-centered. It really responds to the view held by those outside the church and increasingly inside the church that, that, that there's many different ways to God. You see, at the core of being gospel-centered is upholding the truth found all through God's word that Jesus is the only way to God. Uh, This is how we define being gospel-centered at Hertford Street, as on the screen. It says, we value the authority of Scripture as the Word of God. In particularly, we hold to the Scripture's way of outlining God's story of salvation, centering on the good news of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death for our sin on our behalf, his victorious resurrection signaling the defeat of death, and the opening of the way to new life in Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus have a certain hope of a bodily resurrection on the last day and new life for eternity. Well, as you can already see this morning, being gospel-centered stands in contrast with the world around us. There's no surprise that this is what the world believes. And while it should be assumed in the Christian community, it's tempting for us to give up on this core value and truth, to compromise on it as we live amidst a pagan and secular world. Well, as we consider being gospel-centered this morning, uh, this was actually a church value that was already under pressure, even in the early church, as we see in Corinth, as we look at 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, To give you a bit more background of Corinth and the Greek world, Uh, this was a church made up of people as they they were saved, as they believed in Jesus in Greek Asia. Uh, This church had grown, 
but if you've read it before, it was a dysfunctional church. It was divided over many different issues. Uh, For us Aussies, uh, one of our cultural icons or interests is sport. It's a game, but it's more than a game, isn't it? It's also entertainment. It's also a money-making business. We treat sports stars as our heroes, and I guess we treat referees as villains too. Well, the Greeks in Corinth, their most loved interest, it wasn't sport, but it was oratory, public speaking. And for them, it was a game, entertainment. It was actually a money-making business. The best speakers of the time, they were heroes. Their impressive messages won a following and a crowd. And this love in this particular activity in society it was actually creeping into the church. It was seeping into the preaching and the teaching. It was influencing the messages that believers were proclaiming and following. You see, there were people who started to think that the gospel message wasn't good enough, that the truth that believing in Jesus is the only way to God, it's actually not good enough that the teaching of Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, it wasn't popular or good enough. And they thought that we need to add something else. We need to add human wisdom to make it better, to make it sound more attractive, to improve it, to dress it up, to make it more acceptable, to gain better traction and following with the Greek world. That we should treat the gospel message like another public speaking game for the purpose of fame, following, entertainment, and reward. You see, this is the context so far. And here in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, he urges the believers to keep preaching the gospel, to stay true to the cross of Christ, to be gospel-centered, in other words, as we live in a secular world. Well, we're going to explore this today as we unpack verse 18 to 25. Well, as we begin, uh, let's think about things that divide the world. You might say race. You're Caucasian, Asian, African. Maybe you're a Mac or a PC guy, Spence. You might say gender divides the world, male or female. You might say coffee snobs and non-coffee snobs. People who like durian and people who hate durian. People who think the wallabies were robbed and then there's the kiwi flans. There's lots of ways to see and divide the world. Well, Paul starts off this section. He shows us that as people of God, as believers holding out the gospel to the world, this is how you're to see the world. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Corinthian Christians were seeing the world a different way, and it was through their public speaking lens. Verse 12 shows how they saw the world. They had the Paul guys, the Apollos guys, the Peter tribe, asking who was more impressive, focusing more on the presentation than the content. And here Paul, he wakes them up to reality. He says there's only two groups, those who are perishing 
and those who are being saved. It's not about who spoke it more attractively or has a bigger following. It's about the perishing and the saved. And those who are perishing, the cross was a foolish message to them. Of course it didn't please them. It's nonsense to them. The word of the cross, if you think about it, is complete opposite to the world's ways. Life through death, defeat through victory, weakness and power. It's absurd. It's unthinkable. It's unfollowable in the eyes of a perishing age. But for those who are being saved, the word of the cross is God's power. It's the message that we know that saves souls, that points to the author and winner of life and salvation, Jesus Christ. Paul saying, forget about your groups, forget about your followings, your arguments on who's better or who's a better preacher or pastor or who gives the more attractive message. Forget about changing the message. Forget about dressing up its delivery. Instead, see the world these two ways, two groups, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. You see, the word of the cross divides the world and every person in the world falls into these, one of these two groups. From here, Paul, he keeps going. He shows how incompatible the word of the cross is from the ways of the world. Have a look in verse 19. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul quotes Isaiah 29 verse 14 here in the Old Testament to show that God's ways always stood in contrast with human wisdom. He destroys and overpowers human wisdom. So it doesn't matter if the word of the cross seems foolish in human eyes. It's God's way of saving dead sinners to life. Verse 20 goes on to mock human wisdom. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debate of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Human wisdom, the oratory performances, the speeches of Corinth, they might sound impressive, They might even promise a great future and fix the problems of the world, but none of them can fix a fallen and sinful humanity and help them know God. No human message can do that. Only God's work, only this foolish message in the world's eyes, only proclaiming God's good news of life won through believing in a crucified Saviour can allow people, sinners like us, to know God. And in light of this, Paul, he lists out all of these human wisdom figures. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where are the debaters? The world's wisdom has failed. God shows it to be foolish. The world doesn't know God through any of these human wisdom ways. And this is our second point today. In the cross, God shows the world's wisdom as foolishness. Because instead, God, he's pleased to make a way 
for fallen and sinful humans to know God, to be saved from sin and death, and it's through a foolish message in the world's eyes. And that's by believing in a crucified Saviour, Jesus who died on the cross, who rose into new life forever. This passage, it needs a lot of focus because as we go through it, we have to keep tabs on how Paul uses words like wisdom and foolishness because there's God's wisdom and then there's the world's wisdom and there's God's apparent foolishness and then foolishness in the world's eyes. And as we continue to the last part of this passage, the word play on wisdom, foolishness, strength and weakness, it keeps on going. And here we'll see another reversal of ideas because in the cross, God shows his foolishness as his wisdom and power. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Paul, he continues to show this incompatibility of the word of the cross to the secular worlds of the time. The Jews of the time... They were looking for signs, evidences of mighty wonders, of a promised king who'd come and defeat the Romans and establish their nation of Israel. And to them, the word of Jesus on the cross, it wasn't what they wanted. It was a curse to be crucified on a cross for Jews. It was a foolish and weak message And Jesus, in their eyes, was a weak king who ultimately died a cursed death. And here the Greeks in Corinth, they were looking for wisdom, philosophical thinkers, intellectual prowess. And to them, the cross of Jesus, it wasn't what they wanted to hear either. It was a foolish and weak message. It wasn't attractive or verbose. God would never stoop that low, they would say. And Paul's reply to this is in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christians, people of God, people saved in and through Jesus. The message we preach, proclaim and share is exactly this message. Christ crucified. The word of the cross, the promised one of God who died a sinner's death, who rose victorious to new life, who offers life and salvation to those who believe in him. And even if it's foolish and weak, in the world's eyes. The message of a crucified Christ, the gospel message, it's God's message. It's the way that God chose to save us. So therefore, it is the power of God, and it is the wisdom of God. And it's because of this we know that in the cross, God shows his apparent foolishness and weakness in the world's eyes, as his wisdom and his power to save. Verse 25 confirms this by saying, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's saying that this moronic, which is the Greek word here for foolish, this moronic thing of God, pointing to saving humans through a crucified Savior, is wiser than any wisdom of man. And this weak word of God, work of God, pointing again to a crucified Savior, is stronger than anything humanity can produce to save. In other words, the cross of Jesus, this is God's power. This is God's wisdom, better than anything that the world can offer. And no matter what the world thinks or says, this is the message to preach, to proclaim and share. This message works. This is the message that when believed, accepted and trusted, will pave the way to life, salvation and forgiveness of sins. We've sung about it all morning. The cross of Jesus is the only way to have a right relationship with the God of the universe. So in this passage in 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul unpack what, looked, what, it, looked like, what it looked like back then to be gospel-centred in a secular world of the first century, especially how the gospel message was going to be received by the world around them. And he's alluded to some of the temptations as this church held out the gospel to the world around them. Well, the world around us today is still that same secular world. Different secular values, but still a world void of God and interested in things of this age. And being gospel-centered in a secular world today, this message is still unpopular. There's a temptation to dress it up, to make it more like an entertainment or attractive thing, to lose confidence in the content of the gospel message to even change it, to even move on from it, to even not talk about it. And I believe Paul's encouragements are still true today. That's one reason why this is part of God's word, for us to be challenged by it today. Because while the world has always been secular, I think we're actually in a special cultural moment where we're moving from Christianity being the bedrock of society to Christianity being more of an outlier in society. So what does it mean to be gospel-centred in today's world? Well, I've got four comments from Paul's word to Corinth for us today. And the first is this. See the world through the lens of the cross. The Christian world today, I think, is so fragmented We have denominations, tribal networks, parachurch networks, labels, affiliations, on and on, pastors we follow and like. For me, I'm part of this church, Hertford Street Baptist. I'm part of the Baptist Union of Queensland. I'm part of a network called the Gospel Coalition Australia. I would call myself a few different labels I fit in, and I like certain pastors and preachers. And this isn't harmful in itself, but it can and does become harmful when these groups and followings capture our minds and become the lens which we see the world. And Paul reminds us 
that it's the word of the cross that divides the world. You see, this is the most urgent, important, and pressing way we're to look at our world around us. Not denominations, churches, tribes, or followings, but those who are saved and those who are perishing. And the difference between these two groups is the word of the cross. So if we're to be gospel-centered, if we're to be a church on mission, which is the first part of our church vision, we have to see the world through the lens of the cross. We need to put those glasses on. We need to wipe our lenses clean. We need to recalibrate them and see the world through the lens of the cross. Two groups of people, the perishing and the saved. And that's what the perishing world needs. They don't need a popular or attractive or cool message. It's not bright lights and feel goods. They need to hear about Jesus who died for them on the cross, about Jesus who rose into new life, about Jesus who offers eternal life as they believe in him. See the world through the lens of the cross. I know that I get so sucked into other things that I forget to see the world through the lens of the cross. We're all tempted to take those glasses off and we all need to ask God for help to see the world in this way. Second comment, I know the threats to being gospel-centered. In Paul's writing here, we see Paul identify the threats of the time to sharing and proclaiming the good news, threats that would pull people away from the power of the cross of Jesus. Well, if we think about today, there's common and timeless threats to the gospel message. There's moralism, Jesus plus works in order to be saved. There's religious ritualism, whether Jesus is in the picture or not, it's about ticking the boxes, we go to church, we give a bit of money, we take communion every month, and this is all credit that leads you to being or staying saved. Then there's polytheism, Jesus plus other idols. You might believe in the saving work of Jesus, but you also believe in other ways to salvation, and the exclusivity of the gospel message is gone. These are timeless threats that are in the world and they're also in the church too. And as we think about threats to the gospel message, we should also think through practical and contextual threats closer to home for us. What are we prone to adding to the gospel as God's wisdom and power to save? What are we prone to adding to the gospel as God's wisdom and power to save. People will be saved when we do this or have that. Our church will grow because people will be saved when we do this or have that. I think one of the current threats to the gospel message that's close to home affecting churches in the Western world, in Australia, in Queensland, in Brisbane, it's pragmatism. Pragmatism. Being pragmatic is a good thing. 
You want to think about how you do things. It's good to be efficient and effective and organized. But pragmatism can undermine the power of the gospel by saying, if we have these things, people will come to Jesus. And the power to save, if you think about it, is not in the gospel, but it shifts more and more to the pragmatic things that we do. For example, programs. If we just had a kids' ministry or a youth ministry or an evangelism course or great-sounding full band with drums, people will come to Jesus and our church will grow. Programs are great, but they're not the silver bullet. They don't replace the power of the gospel to save. Property. If we just had better facilities, a bigger and newer building, a big car park, a better location, people will come to Jesus and our church will grow. And again, buildings are important, but they're not the silver bullet. They don't replace the power of the gospel to save. So many church visions these days are really all about building bigger buildings and giving money towards that. Last example is personality. If we just had a young and trendy pastor, sorry, (laughs) a powerful and charismatic preacher, sorry again, an outgoing evangelist, if we just had things like those, people like them, people will come to Jesus and our church will grow. And again, having the right people around is important but it's not the silver bullet. It doesn't take over from the power of the gospel to save. People will be saved when we. Whatever you add after that that's not proclaiming Jesus can be or is or will be a threat to being gospel-centered. You see, if we believe that the gospel is the power to save, People will be saved when we proclaim the gospel. People will hear the plain and simple message of life found in a crucified saviour. And as God works in people's hearts and minds, people will be saved. Know the threats to being gospel-centred. Third comment, be prepared to face the world around us I think not much has changed between Paul's time and ours. The gospel message, the message of a crucified Jesus, is foolish and weak to the world around us. And not only is the Bible's message foolish and weak, our world around us has a cold contempt for the saving message of Jesus. The word Christian is synonymous with loser, unintelligent, bigot, homophobe, and more. Paganism is rife. One of the biggest things I saw in Tassie, paganism was front and center. Biblical literacy is falling in our community, in our churches, even amongst Christian leaders. You talk to some young people today and they don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know anything about God and Jesus. You see, it's a tough world to share the gospel to. So don't be surprised. Be encouraged instead that the gospel 
truly is the power to save, and the gospel is indeed God's power and wisdom revealed. And prepare yourself too. Do this by walking close to Jesus day by day. Read his word and reach out to him in prayer. Do this, prepare yourself by being in community with other believers. Satan loves it when we decide to do it on our own. When we say no to committing to a local church, when we have a low view of coming together as believers. You might have heard the saying, it takes a village to grow a child. Well, I think it takes a village to live for Jesus in a secular world. It takes a village to proclaim Jesus to a secular world. So commit to the gathering of believers. Talk about your struggles in living for Jesus with other believers. Encourage one another in your struggles. Lean on one another as we live for Jesus in a secular world. And third thought, prepare yourself by reading and understanding the world around us. God's given us word, but he's also blessed us today with heaps of resources to stir us to keep living for Jesus. Our church library has a few of these books, Being the Bad Guys by Stephen McAlpine, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy by Sam Chan, both Aussie books, Aussie authors, Knowing Our Society Well. A few of the books that you took the other day in our giveaway in July also help prepare ourselves to live in the world around us. So read, be encouraged, and be prepared to face the secular world around us. Our fourth and final comment, stay committed to proclaiming a crucified saviour. Keep on sharing Keep on sharing the good news of life in Jesus. Know that God declares in his word that the cross of Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Maybe this is a good moment to ask yourself if this is what you're committed to believing and sharing. The word of the cross. Well, as we sing our final song in a moment, let the truths of the lyrics as you sing them refresh and renew your heart, your mind, your confidence, and your assurance, and your zeal and commitment to the good news of Jesus on the cross and life in him. We're going to sing in a moment, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Be reminded that even if the world sees this message as weak and foolish, that the weakness of God is greater than man and the foolishness of God is greater than man's wisdom, that the cross of Jesus is God's power and wisdom and it's the only way for a fallen humanity to be saved. Let's pray. Father God, help us to remain faithful to your good news of life won through the work of Jesus on the cross. Remind us day by day of your mercies in Jesus. And as we seek to point others to you, 
Help us to know that the work of Jesus on the cross is your wisdom and your power to save. Lord, please work in ordinary people like us as we faithfully proclaim your gospel to the world around us, that people might find life in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.